Welcome back to the podcast, and I am in a fantabulous mood today after receiving a comment on the Clips channel, and it's not all about the comments, but when you do get to read a comment that says, basically, you're doing great, and I'm shocked that you have this low of subscriber count, it feels, it feels pretty good. So thank you to the person who did that, and without further ado, let's jump straight in to the episode today. So... We're going to actually start with an Apple article, and we're going to end on an Apple article. So the first one is that Apple Rumors basically put out, or Mac Rumors, I believe it's the actual website, but they are rumoring a glucose monitor possibly coming to something as such, the Apple Watch. So the company has apparently been researching this technology for several years. I even read in some cases up to 10 years on this technology, and they're currently conducting uh, feasibility studies to evaluate you know, accuracy, reliability of this monitoring system. And the potential impact of this system would actually be rather significant for people with diabetes. It could provide, you know, real-time glucose monitoring without the need for needles or invasive procedures, which would be a pretty big tech leap for people with such conditions. So, you know, how could, you know, the development of this help with that? Well, it's pretty straightforward. Real-time monitoring is a big deal. The Apple Watch is oddly... Apple took smartwatches a different direction than anyone else. Everyone else was like, ah, they're fitness workout trackers, and they tell you the time, and you get phone notifications. And Apple's kind of seems to be going the way of, no, 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 no. You need an Apple Watch. It is a health monitoring tool that will call the police if you're in an accident. It will do everything you might possibly need it to do right here on the Apple Watch, which is why you need the Apple Watch. And it will also do your workouts, your, you know, everything else that you would expect from a smartwatch. It just, it seems to be pretty brilliant. It, as fun much as they get made fun of for some of this advertising they do during some of their things, this genuinely seems like a cool and different way to pull the device in the market. So, you know, what challenges might Apple face bringing such a product to the market? you know, particularly in terms of regulatory approval and user adoption. Well, it'll be interesting to see if this is something where they've infringed on any patents or anything like that as well. With the recent ones, what did we talk about the other day? That was, they were infringing on, was it the heart monitor? I can't remember what it was, but basically they were infringing on some of that tech and hopefully they're not doing the same thing here. But I would guess they're not. If they've been doing this for 10 years, I'm guessing they've been doing this for 10 years. And it will be ready to, when they're ready to bring it out. And if this is something that comes in the next couple of generations of Apple Watches, that's a pretty big deal. So assuming that rumor might be true, hopefully it is, we'll find out. Next up on the list of things to talk about, we have Intel and AMD sold the same amount of GPUs which is wild to think about. Intel just getting into the market of GPUs. And to be fair, so NVIDIA sells 82% of current GPUs. AMD and Intel do 9% each, combining for that 18%, which is wild to think about, that in under a year, Intel managed to grab 9% of dedicated desktop graphics sales, which is quite wild. So... That said, they also have only targeted lower and you know budget lower end budget cards, and hopefully that this will do is make Intel and AMD keep having to raise the game in the budget market, which hopefully will bump them to be able to compete 
compete with NVIDIA on the high end as well. And the really the big news about this is it means that ARC and Intel was not a flop. Some of the reviews and channels out there made it seem like it wasn't as great as people were hoping. But I think this shows that from a consumer standpoint, it must be. The reviews must have been good enough and their friends must have said it was good enough for at least 1080p gaming on you know, budget cards. So the big deal here is basically that AMD can't ignore Intel. NVIDIA, NVIDIA is going to keep doing NVIDIA things, but AMD can't. AMD is now basically in this weird sandwich of not only do they not have the low end locked in anymore, but they also don't have the high end because NVIDIA has always had the high end. So now all of a sudden AMD's in this weird flux position where hopefully that means we're going to see a ton of innovation from them specifically. Hopefully, I mean, hopefully Intel does too. NVIDIA, again, does NVIDIA things, so... You know, let's not put any hope in that bucket. But yeah, I think this is great. I think one of the discussion questions is basically how will competition and what innovations and advancements do you expect to see of this? I think this is great for competition. We were hoping that Intel would be able to make a splash like this, and it seems like they have at least on the budget side, which was their goal. So you can't complain with that. Yes, 9% is a low amount, but 9% in under a year is actually pretty spectacular. So what other features do you think Intel Arc would need to have in order to compete with established players? Well, I think what we're seeing here is they are competing with at least AMD on the budget end. And I think like AV1 encoding is a great way for them to have stepped up and just kind of gone above and beyond. What I would like to see is hopefully in the next couple of years, they release something that at least hits the high, middle high end. Not I don't think they'll be able to hit the high end, but middle high end where it does force you know, maybe your six to $800 graphics card tiers to get much more competitive instead of just, you know, $300-ish. But, I mean, you just really can't complain. I don't know what other features they'd have to order. Really what they got to do is just figure out, you know, getting that higher FPS, getting, you know, more cores, whatever they need to do to get that up there, which some of the, I mean, some of the firmware updates have done that where they've gotten massive gains just by, you know, rewriting code and making it more efficient. So hopefully that continues and we can see that, you know, rapidly expand in the next few years here. Next up, as always, Tesla's in here. So Tesla has officially opened up their supercharging network to non-Tesla EV owners in the U.S., offering them access to over 25,000 chargers. So this move is in part due to efforts of Tesla to expand its charging network and promote EV adoption, as well as just generate revenue from, you know, non-Tesla owners. Uh, non-Tesla owners, basically, you just download the Tesla app, add payment, you know, create a Tesla account, and you're set up, good to go. So, you know, how will this affect, you know, EV industry? This is one of the biggest things that could happen. What hopefully will happen here and what I really hope happens here is other car companies will either adopt Tesla's plug or at least will make adapters. And then from there, hopefully they'll even be willing to put money into Tesla's network and help just build it out. I, I don't know what that looks like from a Tesla, like a Ford and Tesla would be like, hey, Ford wants to put in a few million to build all these chargers in the U.S., I don't know how that works out as a benefit for Ford necessarily, other than maybe they can say they're, you know, officially supported by, I don't know how that worked work for them, but 
stuff like that could be a huge deal for streamlining uh, electric vehicle charging to the point of like filling up your gas car where you go anywhere. Yeah, the price is different. Price will be different anywhere, but you can go anywhere, fill up and be ready to go again. So that said, uh, what challenges might Tesla face expanding its network like this? I think that's relatively straightforward as well. A lot of supercharging stations at certain at certain times of day get backed up because cars only charge so fast. One of the problems I see with them doing something like this is some cars charge slower than others, some charge faster than others, which might make lines or these places fill up faster when it comes to, you know, well, this, sorry, this looks like it was spent, but when it comes to like charging these vehicles, you're going to end up with longer lines and stuff at ones where cars are charging that weren't meant to handle the speeds or just can't charge fast. Hopefully what that means though is, like I said, hopefully other car companies will invest in this and just grow it faster so that's not as big of a deal as it could be. Next up on the subject of electric vehicles, we have Ford wins the United States Postal Service contract for electric mail trucks. So basically they won the contract to supply 9,250 electric mail trucks to the USPS, which is the largest ever electric vehicle order in U.S. history. And so the Ford E-Transit will be the vehicle to replace the fleet of delivery trucks that have been in service for over 30 years. Uh, which will significantly reduce emissions and operating costs for USPS, which I don't know if I completely believe right now. So basically, some of these trucks are expected to be on the road by the end of 2023 and will be built at Ford's new electric vehicle manufacturing center in Tennessee. Uh, one of the questions we have here is just, you know, what impact do you think the switch will have on USPS and its customers? And this is where I want to talk. I looked up the e-transit because I was like, e-transit, I'm not really sure what the range on those is. And... Uh, I, I guess I didn't double check to see if this 126 miles is what I found. I don't know if that's full charge or I believe they only have like a 67 kilowatt hour battery. So that probably is full charge, but I don't know if that's fully loaded or not, uh, which I, in my opinion would basically limit these to inner city the delivery vehicles because 126 miles of range is going to disappear fast delivering mail out of city unless they have that many locations just so much closer. But, I mean, it's a step forward. I, I, I don't even know how else was bidding in this to try and get this. So, that said, I don't know what the competition looked like. Maybe this was really the best option for him. It just, 126 miles of range for a mail delivery just seems like it's not going to be enough. Uh, but here we have just another question here. Do you think that this contract will inspire other companies to invest in electric vehicle suite? Holy reading error. Do you think this contract will inspire other companies to invest in electric vehicle fleets? And what role do government incentives and you know regulations play into this? I think if they're giving away contracts like this, then for sure. I think that the bigger problem is going to be that all these EVs are newer and everyone's just pushing the switch so quickly that I don't know how well we can keep up with the demand, let alone how long it will take to manufacture all the vehicles to keep up with this demand. And how long these vehicles are really going to last 126 miles of range if you're losing three four percent a year i mean you're not going to have much range in that long and these are going to be daily driven daily driven you know daily charged possibly multiple times a day vehicles what does that really look like i mean we'll 
I guess we're going to find out, but it just seems, you know, seems weird to be pushing it this soon. It seems like we needed to wait a little bit longer just to get the range up there a little bit, efficiency up there a little bit, charging up there, because they're going to need to add charging network. And I don't know if these vehicles will be able to use Tesla chargers, if they're going to install chargers at the postal service, postal office. Like, there's a lot more to figure out than just supplying these trucks to replace your vehicles. I mean, there's this is going to just be a massive change here that's going to have to occur. And, I mean, by the end of the year, basically. So we'll see what becomes of that. Next up, we have uh, what's become of Twitter's co-founder, Jack Dorsey, who's just launched basically Twitter 2.0. He clearly still doesn't want to get rid of... Uh, he must like birds because... <laughs> Uh, he created a new decentralized social media platform called Blue Sky, and it, it operates independently from Twitter, obviously. Now, the goal of Blue Sky is to create an open, decentralized social media protocol that allows individuals to control their own data and content without the influence of big tech companies. So he's also partnered on this with the Ethereum co-founder, Joe Lubin, to develop this co protocol for Blue Sky. Essentially, it's going to work like Bitcoin for social media is the general sense here uh with with that said uh i think this is going to end up being like a wild west twitter and i don't know how it's going to work out other decentralized platforms end up swinging wildly one way or another and just become echo chambers for that side and so i don't know how they're going to figure out a balance for that in this platform for sure but you know how do you think this could change the landscape of social media and online communication i think if done right it can be a great public forum for open and real discussion. My light just died and could really make a difference. Uh, that said, I think that's what Elon's turning current Twitter into for the most part. So we'll see how that really plays out in the world. But competition's never bad. And, you know, when gaining widespread adoption and competing with established platforms like Twitter and Facebook... And Instagram. I mean, how are you going to do that? And that's that's a fantastic question. Getting people to switch platforms is hard enough, let alone adopt another new platform. They're really going to have to try to offer something wildly different to be able to get people to switch, or maybe not even switch, but adopt that as another platform. With so many platforms out there, I mean, you have Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, um, YouTube. I mean, you can have some other ones like Mastodon and... Uh, whatever Trump's platform's called, Truth Social or whatever that thing is. I mean, there's the point is there's a lot, and which one are you going to be a part of? Now, this is an Apple-only beta, so if you want to try it, you better have an iPhone. If not, well, we'll see what becomes of it. Next up, we have one of my favorite favorite topics of today, and that is Anchor is... Uh, showing off an iceless cooler and by showing off I mean they did like a soft drop if that makes any sense so it's called the anchor everfrost cooler it's a new high-tech cooler for outdoor and camping enthusiasts that will chill your beverages without ice so you can take your coca-cola can chuck it in there at room temperature and it'll chill it down to sweet 32 degrees uh, American Freedom Units in 30 minutes, which is actually pretty impressive. Uh, with the battery pack that comes with this, it's a 299-watt-hour detachable rechargeable battery that will chill for about 42 hours on a single charge. 
Uh, that said, we don't know all the details yet. They only released a couple today, and it looks like through the 3rd, 4th, and 5th, they're going to release more details. And then on March 23rd, they're going to drop this sweet thing on the old Kickstarter and get her going. Uh, one of the discussion questions that I wrote is just WTF. Every once in a while, a brand comes out and is like, we could do this. It'd be kind of cool. I'm guessing this will be powered by their new gain power technology or GAN power, whatever you say. And, I mean, sweet. I mean, it's cool to not need ice. I don't know. I mean, it's going to have to be built pretty substantially to not water damage itself with condensation. And we'll just see, we'll see how that plays out. And, uh, you know, how do you see high-tech camping gear like this changing the outdoor recreation industry? Be interesting to see if it ends up being lighter than if you were to put ice in a cooler that size or if it won't be. I did think they were going to offer three separate sizes. I don't remember what those were, but how much heavier are they going to be with a giant battery versus ice? And what's the power cost versus just putting ice cubes in it? Like, is it actually worth it or is it not worth it? I mean, it's rechargeable, so that's one benefit, but is it you know really worth it? And then just... How do you see high-tech gear like this basically changing outdoor recreation? It's technology, man. You know, stuff changes. That's really, that's really hard to say about that. It just anchors releasing a new product, so it's kind of cool. And lastly, and this is the bombshell I'm going to leave all y'all on, is it is actually rumored that the iPhone 15 will feature a USB-C charging cable. And on the flip side of that, I have titled this section, Apple Made for iPhone Rip Type-C. And you might be wondering, what's that mean? So, this is all rumors, but it, it does sound like a way Apple would do things. The rumored USB-C uh, MIFI, MIFI's the wrong way, MIFI, uh, you know, made for iPhone restrictions on the iPhone 15 may limit the charging speed and accessory compatibility with your iPhone. So as Apple's been moving all their other devices towards USB-C adoption, they've been you know, not willing to do the iPhone. Now, I believe they have till the end of this year, technically, so they could release this iPhone without Type-C. And my original guess was they were going to go, well, Type-C's stupid. Let's just skip that and go straight to wireless charging. But what it seems to be here is they're going to go straight towards USB-C adoption, and they're basically just going to make, if it's not a made-for-iPhone cable, it just will suck more. Uh, which, on one hand, is good, because it'll mean that if you get a made-for-iPhone cable, okay, we know it's going to be a good cable. On the other hand, if it's a good cable and it just happens to not be approved by Apple, now it's not going to work as good. So, it's good and bad. It's... It's another way for Apple to create e-waste and say that they're doing a good thing at the same time for a company who cares about e-waste. But, you know, hypothetically speaking, if Apple did want to make, you know, super fast charging available on the iPhones, restrictions like this would actually make a lot of sense for them if they want to make bank. But the EU rules do state all devices that support fast charging will now have the same charging speed, allowing users to charge their devices at the same speed with any compatible charger this will probably only apply to base level i mean so basically they're saying if you have the same charging speed and allow you to charge the device at the same speed with any compatible charger it's kind of vague so this probably would only apply to the base charging speed of the device 
and rather than capping the upper limits. So maybe this will only be for faster chargers. They have to be uh, you know, made for iPhone compatible. It really sucks that they're going this way with it. Again, I see the benefit, but I also think this is a bigger hindrance than a benefit. Unless it won't actually limit you and it will just be like a rating to let you know like, yeah, this will actually work. But we'll find out in the next oncoming months with the iPhone 15 if this really does end up with a USB-C iPhone. So that said, thanks for watching or listening wherever you are and stay tuned for the next one. Peace.